0: Good morning, good morning, good morning. Good to see you all. My name is Mike, if I haven't met you before. And I'm going to be having the joy and privilege of walking us through our Scripture for this morning. And we're going to be in the book of Colossians. So if you could grab your Bibles or your devices and turn to the book of Colossians. And we're going to be in the middle of chapter 2, verses 6 to 15. And so Colossians chapter 2 verses 6 to 15. And really what I want to talk about this morning is this concept that Jesus is all we need. Who here believes that? Amen. Amen? And, And it seems like such a weird concept for us to think about, thinking about all the practicalities of life and all the things that we have to experience and go through. For me to make a statement like Jesus is all that we need seems a little bit obscure Uh, But that's really what Paul has been doing through this first section of Colossians is basically telling the church that Jesus is all they need. In other words, don't get distracted by other philosophies that are not of God. Don't get distracted by other worldviews. Don't get distracted by worshiping idols that will not satisfy, but simply follow Jesus because Jesus is all that we need. And when we think about, well, what do we need then to exist in this life? What do we need to be fully human, so to say? What do we need to satisfy the longings that we have? Well, uh, so many philosophers have really broken down a few different categories of what we really need as a human. And a major thing that we need as a human is a sense of meaning. Amen? We need life to matter. We need purpose. We need something to accomplish. We need value. Who here needs to be valued, right? We need security. When we think about some of the basic things that we need from a very existential level, it's quite fascinating to see how Jesus actually satisfies all this longing. Now, I've told you guys before about a guy named uh, Dr. Rue. Does anyone remember who Dr. Rue is? Anyone? It was a few years ago I talked about him, so that's probably I don't remember. But he was, a, he was a scientist, a philosopher, and he developed this philosophical system that was basically atheistic, but it was atheistic in the sense that it realized that if God doesn't exist, humans have no meaning, purpose, or value, right? Which is true, philosophically. If God doesn't exist... We have no meaning, purpose, or value. So Dr. Rue said that the only way that we as humans can satisfy these longings for meaning, purpose, and value, and even security, is what he called the noble lie. Does he remember this now? And the noble lie was that we as humans literally have to lie to ourselves that we can create our own meaning, purpose, and value just for us not to go into deep despair and uh, longings that will never be satisfied. Isn't that fascinating? That when we begin to think about how we even exist and what it means to exist to be fully human, Jesus is truly the only answer behind these questions. And so we say that Jesus is all we need, first of all, because we believe that Jesus is creator, that he's creator and sustainer of the cosmos. That's what Paul has been walking us through in Colossians. And now, Paul is going to sort of reach the climax of the letter, the main theme of the letter here in verse 6 and 7, which basically says, if this is who Jesus is, then all of life must be oriented around who Jesus is. Now, it's quite a bold statement that Paul makes. That all of life should be oriented around Jesus. So I think we have to begin by asking the question, well, why? What's some of the reasons that we should orient our lives around Jesus? Now, just as a a preview, I want to read a a fascinating verse for us in this section before we jump through the whole passage. But, But this is what Paul says in Colossians 2 verses 9. I'm going to read verses 9 and 10. So if you have your Bibles, turn there. We'll, we'll read through it later together, but I want to just hang out here as we begin because this is mind-blowing when we read it. So Paul says in Colossians 2.9, he says, For in Him, in other words, in Jesus Christ, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. What's that saying? That the fullness of God dwells in who? Jesus, that Jesus is fully God, right? That's been the argument of Paul up to this point as well. So for in him, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. In other words, Jesus Christ is God. He's creator. He's sustainer of all things. He is God himself. Now here's what is absolutely mind-blowing in verse 10. It says, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him we have been filled. Isn't that a crazy concept? So let's think about that. Let's just meditate on that for a minute because there's so much depth in that statement again. If Christ, the fullness of God, dwells in Christ, if Christ is fully God, creator, sustainer, and now we... As the people of God who follow Jesus, we have been filled. In other words, we get to experience the fullness of God in Christ. Isn't that crazy to think about? And so let's, let's think about how would we define some of the fullness of God then? What is, who is God and what is he all about? So let's think about what are some characteristics of God that we would get to experience the fullness of? Love. Scripture teaches that God is love, which means that us, we get to experience the fullness of God in love, which means we have the honor and privilege of knowing what love is all about, because we know the love of the Father, and we experience the love of our Creator. Amen? What are some other things? What are some other characteristics or aspects or the purposes of God? Yeah, Dakota, principalities and powers, which means that Christ has authority over all evil and injustice, which means for us as humans who long for justice, who long for things to be made right, we get to experience the fullness of the certainty that our God is a God of justice, and will make all things right, and he rules over all things. And guess what scripture also tells us? That we will rule with him. Isn't that mind blowing? What are some other things? Yeah, patience. Yeah, God is long-suffering, which means that we don't have to live in fear of a God who will destroy us, um, who desires to destroy us. He longs to reconcile with. He longs to make things right with Him. He's patient and long-suffering with us in our sin. Yeah, we get to experience full forgiveness. I mean, who here, when we think about it from human relationships, even when we experience forgiveness of someone else, is it ever truly like a full forgiveness? No, there's always still hurt and pain attached with it. There's always still some sort of resentment or anger. But with God, we get to experience the fullness of forgiveness. Because God has brought forgiveness and gifted it to us. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, holiness and righteousness, God is set apart, which means that we now become a set-apart people, that we get to experience transformed lives, and we get to experience the righteousness of God, which means we get to sacrifice what we desire for the sake of the other. We get to be made right in relationship to God with ourselves and others, all these crazy things. What are some other things? Yeah, redemption and freedom from bondages, which means the sin that once enslaved us has no longer any power over us when we are in Christ. We have the power in Christ to overcome sin and temptation and we can live lives of freedom because of that. Amen. Faithful. Yeah, God is faithful to us and, and faithful in his, I think you guys said that at the same time, didn't you? That must be the Holy Spirit working. right? God is faithful to us. In other words, he, when we think about relationships as well, God is probably the only one who is truly faithful to us in all aspects of life. That will never lie to us, never deceive us, never trick us, is always truthful, is always loving. Right? A true sense of faithfulness. Amen. Yeah, eternal life. We we get to experience um, eternal life with God in the new heavens and the new earth, where God will make all things right, and we get to experience the blessing of life with God now and for all of eternity. Life with God, the greatest gift. Pardon? Yeah, no more despair. We actually have hope. We have hope that things will be made right. We have hope that one day we will experience the fullness of what God has for us as humans in the sense that things will be made right and evil and injustice will be eradicated and we get to experience the hope of life with God eternally in a perfect place, right? And so when we think about this, this concept when we think about Jesus, is all we need, I think this is such a powerful statement that Paul is making. For in him the fullness of deity dwells, and you, the church, have been filled with him. In other words, all the things we were created for, all the things we long for as humans, the only answer to all those longings and desires and um, truth is found in Jesus. And and so if that is who Jesus is, if that's how God has revealed Himself to us, then what changes then and what is transformed is that our lives now lead to a line around that reality, around that truth. And so Jesus is all we need. And then the second phrase I have there, and our purpose is to follow Him. And, And this is really where Paul gets into the main theme of the letter. And so let's look at verse 6 and 7 together because this is really, um, a lot of scholars label this as really the highlight, the main point, the main summary of the entire letter of Colossians. In other words, this is everything summarized in a phrase. And so Paul says, Therefore, in other words, everything he's explained about Jesus up to this point, everything he's explained about the preeminence of Christ, everything he's explained about Jesus as creator, sustainer, forgiver, God, all these things, he says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, what are we supposed to do? Walk in Him. As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in in him in other words it's not just theoretical knowledge in other words it's not just doctrinal statements that we make this is something that transforms the very meaning and purpose and direction of our life and he describes what it looks like to walk in him he says rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught abounding in what abounding in thanksgiving and, and so here, here's this beautiful reality that Paul has placed before us our, our calling then as the followers of Jesus is literally to walk in Christ in, in other words as, as Don was mentioning as well it's not just about a, a knowledge a theoretical knowledge to know truth is to live truth Faith in Christ is to be practiced. It's not just to be believed. And so if we trust Christ, the natural inclination is to follow Christ and what He has called us to be. And so it's it's really this journey, and I've heard it said it like this before. I've heard it say, uh, being a Christian is like riding a bike. Now, who here has ever tried to balance on a bike in one spot before? (laughs) And what happens when you balance on a bike? You fall over, right? Where when we ride a bike, there there has to be a forward momentum for us to gain stability. And and so it's the same language that Paul is using. When when we follow Jesus, we're walking a path. There's no no stagnation. There's no um, stability by being put. And I guess I could put it in a more manly way too, instead of a bike too, like think of a transmission with two gears. A transmission with two gears for a Christian is only drive in reverse. You're either moving forward or you're moving backwards. There's no neutral or park. In other words, for us to follow Jesus is to walk a path, forward momentum, in the right direction, constantly. And if we stop moving forward in our relationship with Christ, what happens? Stagnate. And instead of just being stagnant and going nowhere, what's actually happening is we're actually going backwards. We're going backwards from what we're called to do. And so this is why Paul is pretty affirmative in what it means to move forward in our relationship with Jesus. Now, in Colossians 1.10, if you remember... Uh, Paul prayed for the church in Corinth and he prayed that they would walk in a manner worthy of what? Walk in a manner worthy of the Gospel, of the Lord. And so Paul is basically explaining them, well, this is what it looks like. This is how it's actually practiced. This is what it looks like to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And so he says this. It says, first of all, it is rooted in Christ. Well, what does it mean to be rooted? Well, this is sort of the oxymoron of what it means that Paul is saying, because we walk forward, but how do we walk forward? Rooted in Christ, right? And so it's this, this language of a tree with roots that are building all the way deep into the ground. And what happens when a tree has deep roots into the ground? What does it provide for the tree? Yes, stability, but also what? Nourishment, right? And so there's this stability and nourishment that comes from being in Christ. And so the irony then here again is this concept that we move best forward in our journey with God when we are rooted in Christ. Because Christ becomes our nourishment, Christ becomes our stability for all of life. And it's this image then of of not being blown around because Paul's wrestling with the church who's believing all these other worldviews that are distancing from their relationship with God. And and Paul is saying, no, you don't need to be blown around by all the different worldviews and philosophies and deceits that are out there. He says, you need to be rooted in Christ. That is the only way that you're going to experience stability in life. And that is the only way you're going to be nourished in what truly matters in life. And so Paul says we need to be rooted, this agricultural metaphor. Now the next one he uses, rooted and what? And built up. So now he's moving from agriculture to architecture. And and we look at this being built up as this language almost for building a house. And so there's all these distinguished natures about laying bricks on each other and construction in this upward movement of development and beauty and structure and so Paul is saying that for us to be in Christ is to be built up in him. Now now where else does Paul use this language of being built up? What could this be referencing? Anyone else know in scripture? Another one of his letters I'll give you a hint. It's in Ephesians. Paul calls what to be built up? The church, yeah, there it is, the church, right? So Ephesians 2.20, Paul says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And, And so the fact that we have roots, so to say, Paul is building on that concept of just because we have roots of stability and nourishment doesn't mean the building project is complete. There is still something being developed. There's still something moving forward. And Paul says, this is the church. This is the people of God built on the cornerstone of Christ, built as the people of God. And this is where Jude 20 says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. And so, There's this act of nature that we're called to have in this building process, building ourselves up in the faith, renewing and developing our trust in God as a community built for God's purposes. And then the next thing he says, we're we're called to be rooted and built up in Him. And what's the third one? We are called to be... I was going to give you hints here, and then I didn't. But there it is. Established in the faith. Establish in the faith. And so this is this beautiful um, economic imagery. And so rooted in Christ, we have this agriculture built up, we have this architectural image. and now establishes actually this economic metaphor that Paul is using. And established was really just this cultural term that was used to say if something was was guaranteed or confirmed, so you'd be making a business deal. And so if something's established, it means it's trustworthy. If something's established, it means it's reliable. If something's established, that means it's a, a valid purchase. And so Paul uses this economic term to say that you need to walk in Christ to make sure that your profession of Christ is genuine. In other words, it's so easy to have just a verbal statement of a relationship with God, or I believe in God, or yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. And Paul's saying, no, your statement needs to be established by your life. Because if it's not established by your life, then it actually means nothing. And it's only when you walk in Him, when you're transformed by the gospel, that is where you get to experience. The assurance of establishment. And so it's sort of a warning almost a little bit there. And then he says this, the fourth one. Establish in the faith just as you were taught. Then the fourth one he says, we need to be abounding in thanksgiving. And this is really, again, one of the major themes throughout Colossians. And one of the reasons I called this series Thanksgiving and Thanks Living is because of this theme. And what Paul is saying here is if you want to be defined as someone who is rooted and built up and established in the faith, guess what that's going to produce? Guess what type of person you're going to be? You're going to be a person full of gratitude. You're going to be a person who is constantly celebrating who God is and what God is accomplishing around you. You're going to be a person who lives with a deep sense of gratitude. And, and this is a, a quite a fascinating one for me. Because I often think, well, if, if you have, so to say, 10 people, and they all claim to be followers of Jesus, and nine of them simply spend their time grumbling and complaining about life, and one says, I'm thankful and grateful, who's a strong believer? The Tenth one, right? And, and Paul, a major marker for him in the book of Colossians is the attitude that is produced from knowing God. And if you're a person who knows God and you live in a constant state of grumbling, a constant state of complaint, a constant state of criticism, then you have to realize that you are missing out on everything that God has for you and who you are called to be. Because gratitude is absolutely transformative in our life. And let me just give you some examples of of how um, crazy this is. I I mean... Colossians 3.17, Paul says this later too. He says, whatever you do, in other words, all of our lives as followers of Jesus should be defined by this. He says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then he gives a caveat, doing it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Is this what it looks like? Giving thanks to God the Father through him. And when you think about this, The devil cannot defeat a grateful Christian. Why? Because there's nothing to deceive him about. Uh, Death cannot frighten a grateful Christian. Why? Because we have the hope of what? Resurrection. Even life burdens cannot crush a grateful Christian. Why? Why? Because there's nothing that can overcome what God has done. And even loss, the loss of life, that can't even overwhelm us as grateful Christians. Because we know the beauty of life in God. And even needs cannot worry us as grateful Christians. And so you think about all the things that sort of steal your joy in life. You think of all the things that are a threat to you when you think about the devil and spiritual attack, when you think about death and the threat of the reality of one day life will be over, when you think about all the burdens of responsibilities in your life, when you think about all the loss and grief that you've went through, when you think about all the needs that need to be met in your life, when you look at it from a perspective of gratitude of who God is and what He's done, all those things just dissipate, don't they? All those things almost become nothing compared to who god is and what he's done and so the point that paul is saying is that one of the characteristics to know if you're a mature strong christian is how grateful are you and so that's paul's main premise and again this these themes are going to be impact throughout the book so i don't want to spend too much time on them but let's look at this next section of scripture because if that is walking the way of Jesus, if that is what it means to walk in the way that God has called us to walk, well, what is the warning that Paul gives? Well, let's look at Colossians eight, uh, 2, 8 to 15 And what Paul is going to do here is he's going to set these two paths, these two trajectories which we could go on, almost a fork in the road. And so it says, I want you to walk in the way of Jesus... It looks like being rooted, built, established in thanksgiving. I want you to walk that path. But he says, I'm going to warn you, there is another path. And verse 8 defines that path. And he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. Now, he's not talking about general philosophy. He's talking about philosophy that counteracts Jesus. And he says, philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And so the, the first path that Paul is setting up is this one that truly draws us away from Jesus. And so it says not according to Christ. And so a, a way for me to understand this passage is, well, how does Christ define himself? And I'm thinking of the triune way that he def- describes himself, and Jesus says, I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. And so if Jesus says, well, to follow me according to Christ is to follow the way, the truth, and the life, then anything that is anti-Christ, in other words, anti-way, which is anti-purpose, or anti-truth, or anti-life, those are the things that Paul is warning against. Those are the deceptions what bring us against the will and purpose of God. And so again, I bring up Dr. Rue here. Uh, Dr. Rue and the concept of the noble lie, where we have to lie to ourselves that there's meaning and purpose and value in this world. Well, is that not the definition of antichrist against the way of Christ? Where, where not only we are deceiving ourselves to make up a purpose that is actually purposelessness. Not only are we defining truth that is actually a lie, and not only are we defining a life that is actually false and fake, it's the definition of what this passage is talking about in deception, something that takes us away from Christ. And so, not surprisingly, uh, the early church was dealing with many lies and deceit, from their culture and the world around them uh, that was also infiltrating the inside of the church and, and i want to just take a space for us and what are some Deceits and lies from our culture and world that we're even recognizing right now that we could just acknowledge as the people of God as Paul would want us to be mindful of and warn ourselves of. And so I'm going to open it up. What are some deceptions and lies that we see in the world around us right now that are anti-Christ, taking us away from Christ? Yeah, truth is what you make it. This whole concept that all of truth is subjective. I get to decide for myself what truth is. There is no objective truth. There is no truth that is true in all place, times, and events. That is a massive thing in our culture, which infiltrates so many aspects. It infiltrates our discussions of sexuality and gender. It infiltrates our discussion of philosophy, what it means to be something true. It infiltrates all aspects of life. That is such a major one we are facing. It's called postmodernism, if you want to look more up in a more technical term. What are some other things? Yeah, you deserve it, right? Or treat yourself is another phrase that I've heard, right? this concept that all of life is focused on me and we, we can also have a victimization mentality. Well, oh, this happened to me, so I deserve to treat myself. I deserve this. I deserve this because of all the hardship I've been to or I don't need to care about the needs of anyone else. My needs get to met, be met first, right? And in the same way, pleasure, something that right. Yeah. Personal pleasure with no limitation a lot of the times too, right? Personal pleasure is something that defines, I mean, this is what Dr. Rue, in his further definition, Bertrand Russell is another atheist philosopher that sort of went along this line, that Bertrand Russell talked about all of life is an unyielding despair. And the only way we can counteract, counteract that despair is through pleasure, Where pleasure becomes ultimate. Pleasure becomes our ultimate meaning and purpose in life. And when pleasure becomes our ultimate meaning and purpose in life, we act incredibly selfish, which we talked about. And when we act selfish, it destroys everyone else around us. Isn't that fascinating? So it's anti-way truth life to the full. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, just just advertisement in general, right? Just the... the (laughs) the base form of lies and deceit in our culture, that here is something we are trying to sell you and we're going to convince you by borderline lying to you, if not lying to you, so that we can take advantage of take your money basically, right? <laughs> that is definitely the massive cultural definition. Yeah. Yeah, Chico. Yeah. Yeah, all, all the things we try to put our trust in that are ultimately fruitless, that don't actually accomplish, especially the healing aspect. I mean, we're a culture that we, we long, we need to be healing because we realize something is broken, but so often we put our trust in so many things that can't actually bring emotional or spiritual or even at times physical healing to our lives, right? Yeah, a concept, just get rid of the conversation of creator, right? And and that was, it was fascinating, Darwin's major purpose, Asa Gray was actually Darwin's major researcher, and Asa Gray was a Presbyterian, and he believed that God created through the means of evolution, but Darwin, what we call naturalistic Darwinism, Darwin wanted to eradicate that whole conversation and say, nope. We, we evolved with, with no design, with no creator, with nothing. Which means we are basically just animalistic instincts, survival of the fittest, all these things. Which means that, is there any purpose behind naturalistic evolution? No. Is there any meaning of a human behind naturalistic evolution? No. Is there any value of a human behind naturalistic evolution? No. No. Right? And so all these categories are just broken down. They dissipate and fall apart. Yeah. So we could, we could go on and on and on and on and on, but what I want you guys to be thinking of, and myself as well, is when Paul gives us this warning here and God is warning us through Scripture to make sure that we're not taken captive, we have to be paying attention to a lot of the things that we're being taught, a lot of the things that we need to be discerning, a lot of the world views that uh, somehow make its way into our minds still so that we can protect ourselves in following the way of Jesus. Because path one, this path that Paul warns us of in verse eight, is really at the end of the day a path of enslavement and emptiness. And why is it a path of enslavement and emptiness? Because everything that you pursue down that path will not satisfy what you were created to feel, to experience, to know. And not only will that path leave you entirely empty, it will also enslave you enslave you to selfish desires enslave you to self-worship enslave you to sin enslave you to all the things that you think will satisfy you think will give you joy but actually begin to control and destroy you and so Paul says let let me clarify Let let me build a little bit more of what it means to follow Jesus and this is the second path that he brings up in verses 19 to 15 and this is what he says here And this is where the beautiful passage is. Again, I'll read it for us again. He says, For in Him... In other words, get rid of everything that is Antichrist and do everything that is according to Christ. Why? Verse 9. For in Him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. In other words, God became man incarnate in Jesus Christ. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority in other words he has power and control over all things now here's what's wild then we are connected to christ we are complete in our union with christ we are connected to the one who is god himself It's so mind-blowing. The fullness of God is in Jesus, and we get to experience the fullness of God in Jesus, which means everything we need as humans, everything is found in Jesus. And so what does this look like? Paul begins to describe some of the beauty of what it means to experience the fullness of God. So first of all, he he says here in verse 11, he says that we have a new nature. And so verse 11 says, in him you are also circumcised. And this is talking about Jewish culture and language where uh, they would be circumcised to show the covenant of God. But he says, this is different in Christ. He says, for in him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh the circumcision of Christ. In other words, we have an entirely new nature as humans, not just the circumcision of the flesh, which was the Old, Te- Old Testament covenant was all about, which just a piece of the body was taken off. and Christ, the fullness of the body is taken off. And it's sort of a weird imagery if that's in your mind right now. But the fullness of the body is taken off. In other words, we are completely new creations. We have an entirely new nature, which means that we have this ability to experience freedom from sin. And so then he goes on in verse 12, he says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised you from the dead. And so now we have this beautiful description in Christ, in the fullness of Christ, we get to experience resurrection, life and power here and now and for all of eternity. We have this new life in Jesus by virtue of our faith in Christ. We share in his death. In other words, we die to our sin and we share in his resurrection, which means we get to experience the power of God in our life to defeat death and overcome death and so freedom and fullness in Christ means we have freedom from death that lasts through all of eternity. And this is fascinating because the greatest threat of a human really is death, isn't it? I mean, all the things you could ever accomplish, all the good things you could ever do, the, as good of a person as you are, at the end of the day, you will die. And guess what? Everything without God really becomes Meaningless. Now, I, I've brought up Albert Camus a few times, who is a, a French atheist philosopher, and he likes to put it like this, where he basically says, you know what, we look at the small period of time that we live, maybe it's 50 to 100 years, and he says, times that by 1,000, times that by 10,000, times that by 100,000. 100,000 years from now, is anyone going to know who you are, what you've done? No. Even someone like Michael Jordan, (laughs) who lived his whole life trying to leave a legacy of the greatest, and I mean, there's already debates of his legacy being passed in his own lifetime. When we think of 10,000 years from now, or even a million years from now, everything becomes meaningless. But the beautiful thing is that in Christ, in the fullness of God, death doesn't have that threat over our lives anymore, and death doesn't have that threat over our meaning and our purpose and our value anymore. It's beautiful. Now, the next thing that is brought up from Paul is that we get to, oh, I want to make a comment on baptism there too, actually, because Paul uses this beautiful language of he, he compares this, this concept of the circumcision with Christ. In other words, there's a new symbol of experience, life, death, and burial with, with Christ. And he says to share in Christ, death, burial, and resurrection is symbolized in what act? Baptism, right? In, in other words, our display of being in Christ is shown through our baptism by being baptized in Christ. So again, if there's anyone out there wrestling Um, with what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to walk with Him. For the early church, the expectation was baptism was there right away. you got to be ready to be baptized because that's your association. That's your celebration of who Jesus is. And then he goes on to say this, we have a new freedom. He says, as you who were dead in your trespasses, in other words, dead in your sin, And the uncircumcision of your flesh, in other words, living for your own desires. He says, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Amen? Amen? In other words, part of experiencing the fullness of God is being able to experience His forgiveness. Being able to experience all, all the guilt and shame and even the, the healthy guilt that tells us when we've done something wrong. All these things can be eradicated. We can experience the fullness of the forgiveness of God in Christ. We now have freedom from all that. And then here's the last section, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In other words, there's victory. Amen? Victory that lasts for eternity. And so often what, what we do is when we see the rulers and the authorities and the principalities that control so much of the world around us, our natural desire is we want to do what? We want to do everything in our power to try and control and try to manipulate and try to make sure people are established in certain places of power, or even us as a temptation for the church to regain, take power. And Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not what the kingdom of God is all about. He says victory is in Jesus because Jesus has already disarmed. Jesus already has authority. In other words, the the fruition of the kingdom of God, where King Jesus will reign for all of eternity, is established. You don't need to fight for it. You don't need to demand it. You have to be patient in God's timing. So even though we see Satan functioning as the prowling line as Scripture defines him, looking for someone to devour, for those of us in Christ, there's no threat. We cannot be devoured. We don't have to live in any sense of fear or terror or uncertainty of the unknown because in Christ there is victory for sure guaranteed because of who He is. And, and so Paul says there's, there's two paths that you can walk. There's, there's the path of enslavement and emptiness. Or there's the path which says I'm going to walk the way of Jesus. I'm going to walk in Him. I'm going to be rooted. I'm going to be built up. I'm going to be established. I'm going to be abounding in thanksgiving because this is where freedom and fullness of life is actually found. The hope and joy and beauty of the gospel of what it means to be in Christ. So let me pray to that extent as we close by singing a song celebrating God. Gracious Father, we come before You as Your people, celebrating Your goodness, and your greatness. And Lord, we look at a passage like this and we're reminded how easily we can be as humans who live in deceit, who live in empty promises, who search for meaning and purpose and value apart from you so easily. And yet Lord, you tell us so clearly as our creator, as our sustainer, the one who knows us fully, that we need to walk the path of Jesus. And Lord, even though it may seem like a difficult path at time, even though it may seem like there's such great sacrifices to be made, we know in that path we get to experience the fullness of who you are and what you are doing. We get to experience the fullness of your love. We get to experience the fullness of your forgiveness. We get to experience the fullness of your power. We get to experience the fullness of life with you. We get to experience the fullness of victory. We get to experience so much. And yet so often we still choose the path of selfishness, the path of our own desires the path of doing everything to create life apart from you, which is fruitless and meaningless and purposelessness. And so we just pray that you would, by your power of the Spirit, work in us to walk in the way of Jesus. And Lord, I pray for anyone in this room who doesn't know you, who doesn't know what it looks like to walk that path or his, who is struggling to realize if that path is work, worth walking on, Lord, I just pray that You would open up conversations, that Your Spirit would be working in their hearts and mind as well, and that they would come to the conclusion that everything they've strived for is nothing apart from You. And so I pray that they would experience the fullness of, of who you are so that joy and peace and love and purpose and meaning and value can be infused into their life as you, our gracious God, will give it to them. Thank you that we all have hope in Christ to follow. And even though none of us are worthy of following you, you can create us on a path that is worthy by transforming us in your power, in your wisdom, in your life. And so be with us as we leave this week. Be with us as we step into the daily grind of responsibilities and work and relationships. And Lord, teach us to walk the path and the way that is glorifying and honoring to you, for we know it is good for us. Thank you, gracious God. Amen.